0: we now have in our hands a growth story. That if we invest in and innovate in the right way, we can have cities where we can move and breathe and be productive. We can have ecosystems which are robust and fruitful. Now we can use our resources far more efficiently than with including energy, but beyond energy. But now I think you've seen the private sector really register that this is the investment, innovation, growth, profitable story of the 21st century. And as that realization has started to build, I think our chances of getting somewhere have improved.
1: Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Nicholas Stern. Nick is the chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. He is also the I.G. Patel Professor of Economics and Government at the London School of Economics. Previously, Nick was the chief economist of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and Chief Economist and Senior Vice President at the World Bank. He was knighted for Services to Economics in 2004, made a crossbench life peer as Baron Stern of Brentford in 2007, and appointed Companion of Honor for Services to Economics, International Relations, and Tackling Climate Change in 2017. He was President of the British Academy from 2013 to 2017. He has published more than 15 books and 100 articles, including the seminal work, The Economics of Climate Change, The Stern Review. Nick, welcome to the podcast. You're one of the world's foremost experts on the intersection of economics and climate change. As a matter of fact, you may be the foremost expert And I really appreciated the opportunity to exchange views with you over the years. So I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Now, let's start with your early life. You grew up in London, England. Tell us about your family and uh, what you learned from those early years. How did you first develop your interest in economics? Thanks very
0: much, Hank. And it's a real pleasure to continue the conversations we've had over the years. I uh, grew up in a West London, sort of working class part of West London, which, like many places, gradually became more middle class over time, Uh, as did my parents, as my father, who started as a carpenter, started to retrain and earn a bit of money. He was an immigrant, uh, a German-Jewish immigrant from Hitler, and uh, so he had to start all over again when he came. He lost his mother, my grandmother, in, in the camps uh my uh, on my mother's side my mother was um uh one of the uh, an early student at the london school of economics uh, so there was a bit of a uh, economic sort of tradition there but they were both um very concerned politically you know i was born in 46 so in the 50s and 60s as i was you know becoming a teenager going to university it was quite a political household you know we talked politics around the uh, breakfast table they were fairly mainstream labor Party you know best analogy in the US would be Democrats and uh, it was a moment in UK history where the welfare state National Health Service had been constructed in the years after the war there was a still a, a, a spirit of social solidarity from the pressures of the war and the bombing of London and and the experience of the war and the building of the welfare state. And of course, these were the days of decolonization and seeing a world that was rebuilding itself in a a different way. And the big international issues were apartheid and the war in Vietnam. So as a family, we were quite active um, in opposing uh, both those things. So the answer to your question, how did you first develop your interest in economics, was really an interest in politics and um, being sufficiently active and extrovert to want to try and change the world?
1: Very interesting. You know, I grew up and was born in 1946 also. You know, I grew up wanting to do more fishing, walking in the woods and so on. Very <laughs> little interest in politics at an early age. So it came later. But fascinating background. So. Uh, Talk about how you then progressed from, you know, economics, academia to public service. At what point did you integrate your background as an economist with your uh, dedication to climate policy? How did this all come about? Well, from
0: academia to public service, I was always interested in, in development, the economics of development, why some societies were poor, how societies changed and grew. That's what drove me as a a young academic and my very first applied study was on smallholder tea in Kenya. And tea had always been seen as a plantation crop. And this was right after Kenyan independence and some land redistribution. And on small pots of land, mostly women farmers uh, would grow tea, or at least they were offered the opportunity to grow tea, just maybe on a third of an acre or so which was quite complicated because you had to teach people a little bit about the new crop. Those people had to wait because tea is a tree or a bush and you don't get your tea for three or four years. And then you have to collect the tea in a careful way because you just want the top of the the tea. You want two leaves and a bud right at the top. The further you go down the twig, the bigger the leaf. But the less tasty the leaves, so you have to quality control very carefully. You've got to get it practically to the tea factory very quickly, and there those are um, Murrum, you know, red mud roads. And tea grows when it's wet, and mud roads don't work very well when it's wet. You can destroy the quality of tea in the factory. You can't. You can't create the quality in the factory, but you can destroy it. So this is a whole complicated public-private. Uh, story right from the private grower to the private factory with lots of public in the middle trust is very important so you can see I dived into a project my first applied project which had all of the issues around finance trust good governance skill human capital and training and making the best of the private sector which knew the market's fatigue somehow it was a project that had everything and with lots of public policy in it. And it it became very clear to me from there that what you needed was real entrepreneurship from top to bottom, you know, bottom with the tea grower, top was in this case, the tea factory, and lots of good governance and public policy in the middle. And that sort of got got me hooked on public policy in the context of a a, a market capitalist uh, economy, particularly in this context of development. But I think the lessons, from tea in Kenya in '69, I've actually carried with me through through my life. So that I think was the, a very early, powerful exposure to the importance of getting public policy right, particularly in relation to entrepreneurship and the private sector.
1: And so, one thing naturally led to another, right? And, and... Absolutely. First
0: is the uh, public policy, but then there's the link to climate policy. So I'd spent my life really um, in. Uh, economics of development, growth, uh, public policy of various kinds, and I got to, to the UK Treasury uh, after I was chief economist of the World Bank, and at the G8, it was G8 then because Russia was still part of it, at the G8 summit of 2004-2005 uh, in Glen Eagles in Scotland, there were two subjects, Africa and climate. And we got quite a long way on Africa because it was a subject that the president's prime ministers knew about. George W. Bush actually was quite a leader on uh, on Africa at that time, as you will remember. But we didn't get very far on climate. And so I've been involved with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair at that time as a a civil servant, not as a political appointee. And they said, well, look, we got somewhere on Africa because people had some familiarity with the subject. They've been thinking about it for a while. But most of them, climate was completely new. And they didn't see the point. That why were we worrying about this uh, subject? So it was that point that Gordon Brown and Tony Blair said, "Well, look, we've got to make we've got to put some economics in this, otherwise nobody will take any notice." And uh, that's that's what kickstarted. But they wanted me to do it as someone who had been deeply involved in public policy. So it was stepwise. It was public policy for most of my professional career up to the early 2000s. And that led me to being asked to work on climate policy. And once you start on that, Hank, as you know, you can't stop.
1: For sure. Interesting, because I worked for George W. Bush at the end of his administration. And, uh, you know, I'd heard stories that early on he'd been offended as he got lectured to by Europeans on climate change. I don't know whether that was true or not, but... What I found in the last several years, he was really focused on climate change. He, you know, was very supportive of me when I set up the Office of Environmental Policy with a big focus on the economics of climate change at Treasury, and he was a leader in, in helping put together this major nations, you know, uh, uh, an initiative to the idea that that if you got the big countries to do something, it made a difference. So he came along. And Hank, as you know, his father, his father was a key
0: architect of the uh, Rio agreement in 1992 that set up the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That was right. dad who did that.
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I sure remember. Now, that brings us to your landmark study that you published in 2006. So we're going to go back to that. The Stern Review. This study raised the alarm about climate change at a time when it wasn't on most people's radar, as you said, and certainly wasn't on the global agenda, you know, then as it is today. And that famous report, it is a famous report, you wrote that climate change is the greatest, widest ranging market failure ever seen. Tell us about how that message was received at the time and how has our understanding of the economics of climate change evolved over the last 16 years? And what do we know now that we didn't understand in 2006? So put that in perspective. Thanks, Hang. I thought a lot about that question. Just to underline,
0: it's the greatest and most wide ranging market failure ever seen. We all do it, right? We all emit greenhouse gases and we all... Um, Uh, have to live with the consequences of climate change caused by greenhouse gases. And those consequences are potentially huge. So that's why we call it or we called it then, you know, the the greatest, widest ranging market failure ever, ever seen. The uh, initial response was actually quite interesting and quite strong. And that started to pick up you know it was published towards the end of 2006 so we had 2007 2008 and the interest was growing i think it did spark people's interest because you know the scientists had been at it of course for quite a long time and the intergovernmental panel on climate change was created in 88 and the uh, united nations framework convention on climate change in 92 but i think it's still it was pretty much the case that over the 15 years or so that followed the rio creation of the UNFCCC in 1992, it hadn't really caught attention in a very strong way. But I think the fact that we had to recognize that that damage that it brings could have a profound effect on our economies, on our health, on our welfare, that's what we started to try to build. And it did get traction in the first couple of years, um, but building from a very low base, Then along came, and again, you remember this, we all remember it very well, the global financial crisis. And politicians, like people, have a constrained bandwidth. There's a limited number of things that they can keep center stage at any one time. And the global financial crisis, I think, really pushed for a while climate change to the sideline. It didn't overturn anything. And nobody argued, I think, that it did overturn anything. It's just that it you had something that was really building in attention, but from a small level, could have picked up momentum, but it didn't for quite a while because people's attention was diverted for the global financial crisis. So you have to go forward really six, seven, eight years to the Paris Agreement of 2015, which really did give us a very clear sense of direction. And why did we get an agreement in Paris then uh, in 2015 where well, we failed in 2009 essentially around copenhagen i think it came from well the bandwidth problem it hadn't gone away but it was reducing in magnitude but i do think that the science kept telling us that it was we've had another look it's worse than we said before and each time you got an ipcc intergovernmental panel on climate change report the science looked worse and that I think was starting to build in people's consciousness. But there was one other thing which was starting to gain traction in 2015 and has gone on gaining traction. And that is that we now have in our hands a growth story that if we invest in and innovate in the right way, we can have cities where we can move and breathe and be productive. We can have ecosystems which are robust and uh, fruitful. Now we can use our resources far more efficiently then we including energy, but beyond energy. And of course, air pollution kills people on a huge scale, eight to 10 million people a year. So I think if you put all those things together, you know, the functioning of our cities and our energy and our transport systems, the functioning of our ecosystems, resource efficiency, health, and the enormous creativity that's got behind this story, I think we now see this as the growth story of the 21st century. And that is something which I think is the last six, seven years. Uh, it helped with Paris, it was beginning, but now I think you've seen the private sector really register that this is the investment, innovation, growth, profitable story of the 21st century. And as that realization has started to build, I think we our chances of getting somewhere have improved.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm sure seeing it firsthand in terms of the innovation in the private sector. But getting back to the financial crisis, one thing we learned, and we learned it during the financial crisis, and we just see it continually, is it's very hard to get people to focus on something when the threat isn't immediate to get our political system to work right. And so with the financial crisis, it's, it's immediate, there's an immediate need. And in a financial crisis, as bad as it is, the government can come in at the end and do a lot to clean up the mess, right? And stabilize. And this is the opposite. This is longer term. So you don't have the immediate, but the longer you wait, the harder it is for the government to come in. So that's why it it takes a while to build momentum. So speaking about UN conferences in November, the global leaders convened in Egypt for another UN climate conference, the meeting, the COP 27. What were your biggest takeaways from the conference? And more broadly, How useful do you think these UN COP meetings are given that we keep setting voluntary targets and even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we weren't close to meeting any of them? Talk a bit about that. Yeah, I think these conferences
0: now serve two purposes. One is the agreement that comes out at the other end, which does matter. Uh, In this case in Egypt was not very strong. But the other thing is that it's now a group, there are 40,000 people or so there, there were 40,000 or so people in Glasgow uh, the year before. And now you get people to come and they talk and they share experiences, they do deals, they try to get a picture of where the world is going. I mean, let me give you one or two examples. I mean, you had um, at the G20 simultaneously in Bali, But what you had as that was going on at the same time, more or less, as Egypt. And you had presidents uh, Xi Jinping and and Joe Biden say that, look, we've got ourselves into a fairly fractious relationship, but the one place that we're gonna pick up and see if we can uh, start doing better again talking to each other is climate. And that's prompted by the occurrence of the COP27, and I was with John Kerry and uh, Xie jin John Kerry is the main envoy for the US, Xie jin the main envoy for China at COP27. And they were delighted to be able to be allowed to talk to each other officially. They're old friends, so they talk to each other privately, but they could now talk to each other officially. So from that point of view, these cops have become, and it's quite recent actually, because the private sector hasn't been going uh, in, in big numbers, much up to Glasgow. But that, I think, is quite a valuable story. India came with its long-term strategy, redefining its approach to growth. Now, none of that's in the final agreement. But it is, I think, a productive uh, way of getting people together. In this case, the final agreement was pretty weak. I mean, in Glasgow, people had recognised the importance of aiming for 1.5 rather than just well below 2. They said, we've we've made some progress in, in uh, increasing our commitments, but we've got to do more. Let's do more when we get to Egypt. And in fact, they didn't do very much more when they got to Egypt. But we felt the presence of the fossil fuel industry is quite strongly in uh, Egypt. And it's another example, I think, of the bandwidth story, because we had this in the context of Russia's war invasion of Ukraine and the disturbance and dislocation big mess in the world's energy markets. And we saw, I think, an attempt, at least in some quarters, to slow down progress on the spurious argument that uh, we haven't got time for all this green stuff, we've just got to look after the energy side, when in fact, the best way to solve your energy and security problems is to rely on sunshine and wind rather than uh, you know oil and gas from precarious parts of the world. So I felt that the final agreement was was weak and uh the one good thing about it was the agreement around loss and damage that there should be a fund to help countries which have extreme weather events which they couldn't prepare for to try to get themselves through that and rebuild that's worth having but i do worry that it one of those funds with no money in it that uh, causes disappointment down the track so i think in terms of people getting together and talking seriously across the whole range of things. I've just given some examples about how to go forward. I think that was pretty valuable. But the agreement itself, I felt, was a bit flat.
1: You also hear young voices, right? So it gives people a platform. It shines a light on this for the whole world. My frustration comes from the fact that I don't think voluntary targets are sufficient. I see a certain amount of hypocrisy with governments setting voluntary targets and they're not giving everybody the tools or the policies yeah. or the dollars they need to do it you know relying too much on the private sector pressuring yeah. the private sector to do it
0: now, i completely agree with that i i actually think that the targets are uh, a good idea in the yeah. sense that you know we have now understood the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees there's a very good IPCC report of 2018 addressed directly to that uh, difference, and it really does look as if two degrees is much more dangerous than 1.5. The probability of being exposed to extreme heat, and that's potentially fatal every five years, um, you know way over doubles if you go from 1.5 to 2. So there's a reason to have a discussion about targets, and then the next step is to have a discussion about what it takes to reach those targets and then if you and this means investment it means uh, investment and innovation and then what you have to do as a as a society as a polity is to have a fierce and strong public discussion of how you can generate those investments and if there's a positive story to tell and there is one here I mean, you want cities where you can move and breathe. You want much greater energy efficiency, ecosystems which are strong. That sounds like a good idea, even if you've never heard of climate change. So you have to conduct the the politics in a very strong way on the back of an understanding of investment, business and economics. And so you have to generate pressure. And you mentioned the young people and they've been pretty good actually at generating that kind of uh, pressure. You need the business people to tell the government, and they are doing it much, much more now. Look, there's so much we can do, but we have to make a profit. Yeah, you know, yep. it's, uh, And uh, we need an environment where we can have a reasonable risk return. And you got to help create that, right? So yeah. it's that kind of fierceness of discussion
1: rather than compulsory, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and, and investing at a loss is not something that's a winning strategy, right? You can't, no. you can't do no. that. Now, this brings uh, me to the next part of our discussion. Because as you said, one and a half is a lot better than two. And I'd say two is a lot better than two and a half, and two and a half is a lot better than three, right? And and so one of the things that that we saw in Egypt was even more discussion about adaptation and resilience. Because no matter what we do, the greenhouse gases that have already been emitted into the atmosphere will inevitably lead to climate shocks, such as heat waves. You talked about heat, floods, droughts, superstorms, wildfires. What should we do to prepare and adapt for those inevitable shocks? And, and I, I know that was a di- discussion yeah. there. you know, Of course, loss and damages, uh, a discussion. And one of the things I always wanna add to that, not just giving money, but making sure it's done right, right? We can't just keep giving money to Puerto Rico and having them not build it back better. But talk a little bit about this topic.
0: Yeah, I think one of the reasons that uh, climate change action has been growing in terms of its uh, importance for the political agenda, is that we're starting on 1.1 degrees centigrade to get real experience of this stuff. And, you know, you see the floods in Pakistan, you see the fires in, uh, in California, you even start to see the fires in the Arctic Circle, and you see the intensity of the cyclones and the hurricanes. And I think that uh, people now understand that this isn't abstract. This is pretty difficult at 1.1. It's going to be much more difficult at 1.5, and intensely difficult at 2 and, and uh, all the way up. And you have to protect yourself. And if you're in San Francisco and you're building near the San Andreas Fault, there'll be building standards. And if you're in uh, Tokyo and, you know, that also suffers from earthquakes, there'll be building standards. So if you're subject to greater and greater storm surges, you've got to do something about what kind of protection and what kind of early warning systems you're going to build. So I do think now that there's much greater awareness of, of adaptation and resilience. Now, in some places, it will mean that the road or the bridge that you had in mind has got to be tougher and maybe it's got to be a metre or two higher than you thought it would be without the climate change. So you've got to design all that stuff in. But for me, in this context, what we have to be looking for is reactions around adaptation and resilience that carry strong development and mitigation stories. And there's so many of those, and we shouldn't be setting one against the other. The mangroves, right? The storing degraded land, public transport, decentralized solar. It's all adaptation,
1: reduction of emissions, and good development. Very well said. Now, you are the chief economist of the World Bank. What role do you think the World Bank and the other international financial institutions should uh, play going forward? And how should they adapt their work to better deal with climate change? What role should these institutions play?
0: Yeah, Hank, it starts with what we have to do. We're going to have to invest as a world much more than we would have done had we been uh, in a world without climate change. These are great investments, you know, resource productivity, you know, much better transport and energy. But you don't reduce the emissions without investment and uh, innovation. And so the World Bank uh, should be starting uh, from an analysis, which many of us have been trying to do, which says, these are the kinds of investments we have to make around the world in energy systems, in adaptation, in our forests, and, and so on. These are the investments we have to make. It's a lot more. We've got to ramp up investment, probably 2 or 3% in rich countries per points of GDP, and in poorer countries, more than that. And we've got to go back to the levels of investment around the world in terms of fractions of GDP we had, to, well, perhaps 20 years ago. And That means those investments have to be created in terms of a good environment, investment climate, and working with countries on that, which the World Bank should be doing, as with the other multilateral development banks, and you've got to scale up the finance. And we've run some numbers on that. The finance from those institutions has got to be multiplied by a factor of at least three in the next five years. So start with what you have to do, the investment. Then ask what kind of finance is necessary. Recognize that most of it will be private sector, but they can't go alone in many cases. Sometimes they can, but sometimes they're in situations where they need somebody to share the risk and to help manage the risk and reduce the risk. So they can have a big role in that. So I've got two messages really. One, you've got to ramp up your support for investment of the right kind in a big way, by a factor of three or so quickly. And you've got to work much better in the uh, with the private sector. So the shareholders, the major shareholders, should say to them, "This is what we think you should do." And I think the leadership of those institutions would say, "Actually, we've been doing that analysis ourselves. We agree with you. That's what we should do." And then you have to get together. But the shareholders have got to push, but they've also got to stand behind them. You know, if, if you go out there and you lend more and you take more risk, we'll stand behind you. We've got to be done well. And we'll be checking you so that it's done well, but we'll stand behind you. So you need very quickly in 2023, you need that kind of ramp up. It
1: brings us back to your early experience with tea, because I think the other things these institutions need to do is capacity building, right? Yep. Doing exactly what you, what you were doing with the, with the tea growers. Now, there are many ways in which uh, climate efforts of Europe and the U.S. are complementary, obviously. But there's this big tension around the question of who gets to set climate-related global standards, on carbon pricing or energy efficiency or emissions disclosure, to cite a few examples. How do you think these differences can be reconciled, or do you think it's a little bit like you when you when you talked about voluntary standards? You can't make them mandatory, but there can be differences, and and we can still work to get things done. This decade is absolutely decisive i mean emissions have to turn down
0: really very quickly and go on down so my first criterion would be how can we work to get things done quickly and if you set standards in a broad way in other words you don't pick the winners but you describe the bad yeah so you say we're not going to allow internal combustion engine vehicles to be sold in the uk after 2030 I think in California, it's 2035. But standards like that, which are fairly high level standards, I think you could agree on quickly. And the more you do that in different jurisdictions, the faster everything will go. Because people know that if they want to sell a car, it can't be the internal combustion engine for very much longer. So you better get on with retooling and doing uh, other things. So if you set it at a high enough level, then the problems of compatibility are not too bad. If you're in a city and you wanna procure buses, yeah, then probably the mayors of the cities can get together and say, look, if we all say that the buses should look roughly like this, then you'll find that the cost of those buses really goes driving on down because the producers will know that if they wanna sell on scale, they've gotta meet that kind of standard. So it's a question of not getting too specific for everything, if you get specific, Try to get the people who are really the users of the stuff, like the mayors of the cities, uh, very, very much involved. On the disclosure side, my instincts would be, and you know, we've, we've got the task force on climate-related financial disclosure, which Mike Bloomberg and Mark Carney and so on are very active. On that one, given the criterion of urgency, I would say, look, if someone's got a good idea and they've got it on the table now let's not worry which country they're from let's just get on with it you know so i think that's another criterion you can you
1: can bring to bear well said now let's get to another issue that has a lot of discussions when do you believe it is more effective to use market mechanisms like putting a price on carbon and when is a regulatory approach uh, more effective how do you see these tools being used a lot depends on the industry you know we've
0: already given the example it's a very big example of the automobile the, the the car um these are industries with pretty big setup costs yeah and you need clarity in those cases so sometimes standards can give you more clarity than carbon prices if you know that you know california and europe and india and china that they're all setting the standard that says, quite simply, you can't use an internal combustion engine vehicle after some date, and those dates will vary from 2030 to 2040. That's a case where a standards-based approach gives you a really clear signal. And when you've got increasing returns to scale, big fixed costs, lots of uncertainty, the clarity of the signal is an aspect of efficiency. It allows people to get on with it and reap returns to scale. Everybody wants low standards, raise their hand. It's a different kind of politics around words. You can't tell everybody exactly how to do things. You shouldn't, because you'll get it wrong and you'll slow everything down. And that's the advantage of a price. You can say, look, not telling you how to cut emissions, but we are telling you that if you don't, you're going to pay for it and you sort it out. And that's an example of a market mechanism working very well. So I think they complement each other. Uh, you, you need both. But finally, there's the politics. Now you come from the US, I come from the UK. The you know, the the, the historians tell us, you know, with some foundation that uh, taxation irritates people. And in this case, you know, there's no taxation without representation. Taxation in the United States is tougher than it is in Europe. And we have higher taxes in Europe than we do in the United States. So you've got to look at the polity, the politics of the nation that you're talking about. And I I don't think you're going to get a, a whacking great carbon price anytime soon right across the United States. You will have it in places and you do. So, you know, you've got to look at the politics as well. And we're in a hurry. We're in a hurry. We're in a hurry. We've got to get it done. And uh, that would be one reason why you might go
1: for one rather than the other. You know, we could talk about a, a third tool, which is subsidies, right? And so I think subsidies for some of these uh, technologies are going to take longer to develop and commercialize, makes sense, in which we see with, with, with the Biden uh, uh, climate bill. Now, Nick, I want to talk about the big topic, China. Uh, over the years, you and I spent a lot of time in China. I have very much appreciated the opportunity to share views with you on China's role in the global economy. So you've been looking at China for a long time. You've written that China should be a leader in the transition from fossil fuels. Why is this so important? What do they need to do to decarbonize its economy? And to what degree do you think it's possible for countries in the West to accelerate China's progress? I think that's a big part of this. To what extent is that possible? I think that China,
0: of course, is very different in many ways. But there are key points of similarity as well. And China's investors need confidence in where the future is. And in China, still more than in uh, other countries, that confidence in the future is set at a governmental level in terms of what direction are we going in? and if you understand what direction is you're going in as a country investors will be very active in finding good ways of and profitable ways of getting there and that statement's true everywhere and it's extremely important everywhere it's particularly important in china where the state has uh, a much stronger voice in shaping what actually uh, happens and there and we've got you know as you know the 15th five year plan coming up for 2025 to 2030. And China likes to have a scene for growth. And, you know, way back, you know, we've both been working there for a long time now, but way back in the late 70s, early 80s, it was the incentive structures in agriculture and the township and village enterprises. And then it was joint ventures with foreign firms and low cost manufacturing and getting out onto the world market. And then it was a lot about construction and infrastructure and so on. But all those, all those have played their way through in China uh, as a source of growth. And I think the discussion is moving now, and you and I are both of us working on this. The discussion is moving now in China to say, well, what's the growth story of the next 20 years? Well, the answer to that question is the drive to a clean, green economy and net zero, making our economies more robust against uh, climate change, investing in land, uh, investing in degraded land and restoring and building the forests. Those are the investment stories now of this next 20 years. And if China and the conversation is moving in China on that. So what we can do is to help through examples of our own, through exploring what's necessary, showing that this is the growth and investment uh, story and helping finance other countries because China is a big story of finance. So the margins of collaboration, if it's friendly and constructive and saying, look, whatever we differ on. We share that we have to survive in this world that we're deeply damaging. And where China is of course, now close to one third of global emissions. It's huge in uh, all this. So if we approach in a way that says, this is a shared future, we actually benefit from a much better, cleaner growth story. We're gonna move faster in some areas, you're gonna move faster in others. Why don't we keep in touch and share ideas? And why don't we jointly help funding other people, other countries of the world? And I believe that that discussion has a chance and that uh, the fact that it was climate that was it, you know, the first handshake between Joe Biden and Xi Jinping after the visit to Taipei, which caused all the difficulties, it's significant that that handshake was particularly around climate change.
1: I certainly agree that the biggest you know, industrial transformation in history, it's going to take decades, is going to be the transformation to, to a low carbon economy. And so that's going to be huge, and there's going to be big investment opportunities. This is complicated, of course, by the fact that China is a competitor economically, and they've done things to, to try to gain some of this uh, clean energy to their advantage. And so that makes it more complicated. I like the way you framed it, Nick, because this relationship is so consequential between, you know, the West and China that we need some areas to work together where we have a shared interest. And if we can't work together in climate change, you know, or work in complementary ways, the world's going to be a pretty dangerous place. So I would like to move to China relations more broadly. And China's relations with the West are particularly fraught right now. And So how do you view European-China relations evolving in the wake of China's 20th Party Congress?
0: as you recognize places where you differ, and there are difficulties uh, around security. There are difficulties uh, around trade. There are difficulties around intellectual uh, property rights. Those are real areas of difficulty and they have to be recognized and managed. But what you must do is at the same time, recognize areas where You share objectives and you make common cause. Now, we've discussed climate and that surely must be central. Number one, actually, the objectives where you make common cause. But there are other ways, too. And, you know, I'm sitting in a university and uh, one of the great things about universities is that you get older, but the people you teach stay the same age. And you see (laughs) you see different you see different cohorts pass in front of you. Right. And the cohort of the last three, four, five years have been really political in a very good way. After, I think it's fair to say, a period, quite a long period, where the cohorts were not very political, the young hadn't really quite made up their mind what their big issues were. You know, in the 60s, when you and I were at university, it was civil rights, it was apartheid, and for many of us, it was a war in Vietnam. Now, we, we knew what our big political issues were, and we were active. But now you've got young people coming through who really are very much involved in this. And the London School of Economics, where I am, is, you know, uh, we've got very, very, one of the most international universities in the world. And we've got the two biggest uh, uh, categories of Chinese and American students. Uh, You know, lots of people from India and Africa and Latin America and all over the world. And educating young people together is of fundamental importance. And they, you know, when somebody at age 30 gets off a plane, uh, if they've been at the LSE, they've got a whole load of people when they get off the plane that they can go and have a beer with and talk about the world and understand where it is that they've just arrived. And that educating of young people together, I think is of fundamental importance. So I hope that US universities keep the Chinese students coming. Try to send your students there, especially. I know that with under COVID, it's been difficult. But you know, keep those students going back and forth. Keep the teachers going back and forth, and that I think is a fundamental thing you can do together. So, climate and young people. I mean, I could go on, but those are two very big examples.
1: They sure are, Nick. And the London School of Economics is is a magnet for that, right? Yeah. Bringing students together from all over. We've covered a lot of ground. Before ending, we've been talking about students. What advice do you give students who are navigating their lives and careers in today's rapidly changing world? I think the first thing, and I've always said it to
0: students, is you better get some skills. Now, having a big heart and a big conscience, well, I hope you do, because I'd rather, rather that than the other way around you should be wanting to make a difference. You should be wanting to make a living because you're not making a living. It won't be so easy to make uh, a difference. So get some skills, get some skills that you bring to the big problems of the time, get them some skills that you bring to the challenge of making a living. And that's the first thing I tell them. But then, you know, you've got to think about where you work. Who do you want to work for? The very best ones got a choice. They should choose people that they're not embarrassed about. You know, most of our students would not want to work for a tobacco company. Choose where you work. Choose where you save. Now in Europe, I mean, it, it was this way for a long time in the US, but we always used to have defined benefit schemes in Europe for your pensions, which said that, you know, you get a fraction of your final salary. And now you have a defined contribution, which says, you know, whatever you put into the pot, you get returns on whatever's gone into the pot. Well, you can choose you can choose where you steer that pot of savings. You can choose what car you drive. You can choose how efficient your uh, house uh, is gonna be. You can choose whether or not to put pressure on uh, politicians. You can choose where you eat, what you eat. You know, there's so many choices that you make now as young people. Whereas if you express them in a strong, analytical, purposive way, you can really make a difference.
1: Nick, this has been great. This is you're a tour de force here, and you covered a lot of ground. And one of the things I really, really appreciate about you is you have an inherent optimism. So every time I ask a tough question, you understand the practicality of the problem, but you can turn it around and find hope and optimism. And I think that's something I really appreciate about you. And I really do believe with young people, if you have an internal optimism, right, it it helps. It it really does help. We can't stop, Hank. We've, we've,
0: We've got to do something. I'm enormously optimistic now about what we can do. But I worry very much about what we will do. But it's our job to turn what we can do into what we will do.
1: Absolutely. Well said, Nick. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you as always, Hank. Thank you.
0: You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.